It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation each week. We are here to share with you the latest health and medical information available in the community and our region, and we focus tonight on the state of COVID in our area, and I'm pleased to share that the trends continue to look promising. First up tonight, we connect with Heather Hill, the lead public health infectious disease nurse in our region. And Heather, uh, I guess we're still making progress as we near the end of February, the COVID picture still getting better? It sure is, Jim. As we look at the data this week, even compared to last week, we've seen a significant drop in our case rate. Again, people need to understand that all the at-home testing that people do in the privacy of their home do not necessarily get reported to us. And so the data that we see is really from those places that... um, actually do report to the state. So it's typically when you go to the the testing centers or you go to your doctor's office and you get that PCR test. That's what's reported in, in these numbers. And so, you know, it's trending down like, like we want it to. Benton County is at 636 per 100,000 over the last 14 days. And Franklin County is at 725 whereas last week Benton County was 1340 and Franklin County was 1585. So, again, um, trending down quite nicely. Unfortunately, there were nine additional deaths to report last week on February 11th, so I think people need to really understand that though the data is trending the direction we want it to, COVID is, is potentially a very lethal virus and it still is continuing to kill people. So the uh, mitigation strategies are continuing to be extremely important. Um, Our CDC West test site processed 2,615 tests in the last 14 days, and we've again seen a decrease uh, to just below 30% in the positive rate out there. And at the Richland site, they completed just over 1,000 tests in the last 14 days, and with just over a 27% positivity rate. So, again, trending the right direction, the way we want to go. And even uh, when we look at our, our seven-day admissions with COVID and due to COVID, they are also decreasing. So our hospitals continue to uh, see some relief compared to what we were facing just a few months ago. We're going to get a picture of the current hospital situation at Cadillac in the next half of our program. But back to the, the comments you're making, I guess the one stat that sticks out is, and what we've learned throughout the data collection and the data observation throughout the pandemic is that deaths usually lag cases. So that is, does that kind of explain that, that high number that was there? And I'm guessing uh, from what I'm reading, if memory serves, uh, those are high age or elderly aged folks and, and most with uh, some sort of underlying health condition. Right. right. They're mostly older and typically have those underlying health conditions. So we know that it is still continuing to be a, a risky virus, risky virus for that population. Absolutely. The other thing I want to make sure people are aware of is that, you know, as the health district moves into the third year of COVID, and looking at our data, the mask mandate leaving, and trying to normalize our work back to pre-COVID public health work, 
and looking again at our data and what what does it really mean and what is the message to our community with that data is uh, sometime next week we will be decreasing the number of times that we will be updating our data on our data dashboard. So just keep that in mind as you start looking at next week's data that we will start to make a, a little bit of a shift in how or actually the, the amount of times that we report out changes in our data. Washington State Department of Health is certainly still another location that people can look at for data if they want more details. But our focus will still be on case rates, hospitalizations, and deaths, but we won't be doing them on a daily basis as we have now. Back to the specific data that you referenced, uh, those numbers that you cited for both Benton and Franklin counties are roughly half of what they were last week, and I think last week they were half what they were the week before. So significant progress in that realm, right? Absolutely. It's trending down the direction we're really hoping it to go, and that aligns with what Governor Inslee's projection is for getting us down to a, a much lower rate, and particularly that hospitalization rate of 5 per 100,000 for um, that mask mandate to be lifted, which he's anticipating to do on March 21. And where are we as we uh, – I, I want to spend the next segment uh, with this March 21 is the date where – we can get into more detail on where you would still be required to wear masks, but they will be become masks optional, if you will. But I want to do that in the next segment. But obviously, vaccination rates don't seem to be going up any appreciable manner. So, are are you are we seeing any kinds of concerns in the some of these aggregate settings, such as long term care facilities? Are those are we making progress there as well? We're still continuing to see some uh, flurry of activity in those long-term care settings, those congregate living settings where we are are dealing with some outbreaks, and and that certainly has us concerned, and that is certainly where uh, a fair amount of our work going forward will be focused as a public health agency, and, and those across the state, we're all looking to move maybe out of that contact tracing where we're looking at every single case and trying to work that case, we will be moving our focus more to focus on outbreak investigations and working with high-risk settings and high-risk businesses. You know, much like we do with influenza outbreaks, if there's one in a long-term care facility, we certainly do work with them or in a jail setting, as well as some others like norovirus when we um, are aware that there's a norovirus outbreak in a long-term care or a congregate living setting, we certainly do um, step up and, and help with that type of outbreak investigation as well. So again, kind of moving back into some of our more normal public health functions as we see our case rates decrease, our hospitalizations decrease, then our COVID work will decrease as well. So where is your highest level of concern right now? I think my highest level of concern right now is, is our community going to be able to continue some of those mitigation strategies that we've talked about for the last um, two years? Are we going to be able to carry them out for the next roughly month before the mask mandate is lifted? And then extremely important that just because the mask mandate is lifted doesn't mean COVID has gone away. It doesn't mean COVID isn't a risk to us. We still need to... Uh, do a lot of work to continue to protect our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, and our families, because 
COVID is not going to be gone on March 22. It is still going to be here. It's just that there will be a change in, in that mask mandate. And that has me, of course, concerned. Will, will, will the general public, will we be willing to continue to wear masks in select settings or at select times because we know it's a high-risk situation? Will we be able to stay home, isolate, quarantine if we've been exposed or if we're symptomatic? Those types of strategies absolutely have to continue, or I would expect that we would see another increase in in our number of cases in our community. And certainly with this Omicron variant that that came so rapidly and increased, but it seemed to come down pretty rapidly as well, uh, I think the point that you made, it still it still was lethal to the right populations or the vulnerable populations. So is there any other variant that we need to worry about? Or are we, are we at a point where we have either through natural immunity, have people having COVID and the vaccination rates that, that maybe we can get beyond these ups and downs that we've had to navigate the last two years plus? Well, I wish my, my crystal ball again was very clear on this, but <laughs> like with any virus, it's really hard to predict what it's going to do. Um, there are other variants out there uh, Washington State Department of Health continues its uh, look at what kind of variants are coming through. They are continuing to do the sequencing work, as many other um, laboratories across the U.S. are watching for other variants of risk or of concern, and we'll keep our eyes out for those. Right now, there is nothing that um, has us really on, on the edge of our seats thinking that something is imminent, but it's something we we in public health cannot lose track of, and we need to keep watching for these. Very similar to a, an influenza season, when we look at what is uh, circulating in the community, what are what type of influenza is circulating in our community at any given time, and is it a good match to the vaccine that's out there? And that's something that just goes on annually with influenza, and I suspect that um, COVID, we will have to pretty much do the same type of strategy with COVID from from now on, as long as COVID is still within our community and our nation, which um, we anticipate it to be around for quite some time to come. Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. When we come back, we'll get more specifics on the March 21st magic deadline when the indoor mask requirements are set to be lifted. Good news for everybody, but we'll tell you what uh, all the cautions and all the different uh, requirements that are still in effect. We'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And a reminder, the Catholic on Call is available via podcast. Just search Catholic on Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And continuing our discussion with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, the date is March 21st, and that's the date the governor has set to lift the indoor mask requirement. And most notably, I know it impacts schools, places of worship, and the like. If you would, just take a quick second and explain to our listeners, how did he arrive at that particular date? Well, in looking at the data, and again, the important piece of data that he he took into account was uh, hospitalization rates, because we know that 
uh, we have to protect our, our acute care facility's ability to carry for our most ill people in the community. So when COVID rates were very, very, very high and our hospitals were struggling and people from our community were, were flying to, being flown to other states to get their care, we knew that we were in a critical situation. So now that we see these rates of infection going down and the burden of um, illness in the hospital setting to take care of all these patients, that's where they look at where are we at and are we at a safe spot to remove the masks and not risk these hospitalization rates suddenly going back up again. So he looked at trend data and anticipated that by March 21, thereabout, we would hit the five per 100,000 hospitalized for COVID. And that's the rate we feel that our hospitals can handle you know, the typical influx of COVID patients plus all the other care that needs to happen in an acute care facility. You know, a lot of people have been putting off what is termed um, not necessary, necessary uh, surgical procedures or other procedures because of COVID, but there are a lot of people who are out there needing this care that they've been putting off and they're not, they're not inconsequential procedures that need to be done. They're not elective These in that um, they're not life-threatening that they need, but they are certainly, if you need your total knee or your total hip, it's not life-threatening, but it is definitely impacting your life. So, again, looking at decreasing that number of COVID patients in the hospital so that our hospitals can get back to functioning at a normal rate and serving their communities as well. And I know uh, we'll visit with Kirk Harper from Catholic in just a moment uh, on that issue. You called, they're called, I think, non-urgent procedures and a misnomer, elective procedures. But if these are these are procedures that are very serious to the person impacted by them. And from a hospital standpoint, I know they were put on a, I think it was a four-week uh, moratorium from being able to do them, only resuming them this week. So uh, that's a great sign, I know. But as you touch on, that's just one one of these factors that, that was kind of a, that, that, that hindered the ability to provide health care. Right, right. And that's where we look at our case rates trending down the, the direction we want, but more important, we're looking at that hospitalization rate to really tell us, are we ready to um, lighten up on some of our mitigation strategies? So the governor says indoor mask requirements will change on Mar- effective March 21st, all things being equal. So I know the big the big uh, hot button issue is uh, that that will mean schools are not required to have that the masks uh, for teachers, staff, and students. But where are places that uh, folks will continue to wear uh, need to wear masks when they when they interact? So after that March twenty one date, we will still be required to wear masks in healthcare and medical facilities. So that includes not only hospitals, but outpatient facilities, dental facilities, and pharmacies. Uh, Long-term care settings, absolutely. And then federal transit or public transit is federal requirements. So our public transit like taxis, ride shares, and school buses are required to continue to wear masks as well as correctional facilities. And then we can't leave out the private businesses that choose to continue to ask uh, customers to wear masks. 
again, like we've said in the past, there are many reasons why businesses would ask you to continue to wear masks, and that is still um, an option, and we really need to respect that business's need to continue to have customers wear masks. So as you touched on uh, the one point, I guess, like a quick clarification, so public school buses, they would still be required because that's under a federal jurisdiction, but obviously the public schools themselves not required. Correct. So on the bus, masks required, in the classroom, not required. You raise a a very good point because obviously I know the... Uh, there's people that have feelings of masks uh, even with the requirement, and, and we know how that's all all uh, unfolded over the past two years. And I think you you raise a very interesting point. I mean, you may go to a restaurant, and and it's up to them if they choose to 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 continue to to require their customers to wear masks. So just like people would not be re- have to go in there, they can say, "Well, you're not coming in if you're not wearing a mask." That's their choice. Right, it's their choice, and I think it's so important to be be respectful of these businesses, whether it be a restaurant or a retail business. There, there could be very valid reasons why they're really asking you to continue to protect that environment. So be respectful, be kind, be caring, and we've all been through a really tough couple of years, and I think it's time for us all to show each other a little bit of care and compassion as we move into the next phase of how we're going to deal with COVID. And just to to share with folks, other places where masks will not necessarily be required are, we touched on schools, childcare, libraries, and restaurants and bars. We touched on houses of worship, but so health clubs, Heather, as well are okay. And then obviously any uh, grocery store type or retail establishment. Right. Gyms, recreation centers, indoor athletic facilities, you know, grocery stores, all of those will no longer have a mask requirement. We have touched on this periodically throughout the course of the last two years. And obviously, as we hopefully near the finish line with this and, and really begin to come out of COVID, if you will, um, spend a minute or two, if you would, just to me, the word that I, I keep coming back to is grace and civility. Yeah, we've been um, through a really, really tough couple of years, and during stressful times, everybody responds differently, and we've seen such a variety of responses from anger to fear to shame to being very, very upset, and I've just seen the gamut of of emotions in our our public, and I, I think it's time for us to really take a a close look at how we've been treating each other, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, and try to get back to some sense of civility and realize we're all dealing with this together. We've all been through a tough time together. And let's move into the third year of COVID and make maybe a commitment to be a little more understanding, accepting of the choices people make. Because as you go about your life, you will find people will continue to wear masks. Uh, for whatever they choose to wear a mask, that's that's up to them and their reason. We know that throughout the world there are many cultures where masks are pretty normal part of regular respiratory hygiene. Um, so let's just take a time to reflect on how you yourself or your family has responded to COVID and see if we can move into 
the third year of COVID with a little bit more love and caring and compassion. Well said. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks to you, Dr. Person, the entire health district staff. Uh, the end is near. Spring is near. Uh, the flowers are going to start blooming. The weather's going to get warmer. And, and hopefully we're going to from a pandemic to an endemic. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. We'll get a hospital perspective on the latest COVID situation. We'll do that in a moment. Listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. We have touched on the continued progress being made in turning back COVID-19 in our community and our region. We shared that case rates continue to head in the right direction, but what about hospitals? With us to get an update on the COVID hospital situation is Kirk Harper, the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. Kirk, thanks for taking the time. Just a quick question. How's it going right now at Catholic? You know, Jim, thank you for uh, asking. And as I get ready to answer that question, I really need to take a minute to say thank you to all of our caregivers and providers. I want to do this every opportunity I get because all that they're doing, serving our patients and taking care of our patients and just taking care of each other while we're working through this, just have to continuously tell them thank you and really acknowledge all that they're doing. As far as uh, how things are going, you know, it's nice seeing the numbers decrease with patients who are admitted you know, we differentiate between admitted for COVID or happen to have COVID and are admitted for another reason. It's still nice to see a decrease in the numbers of patients who have COVID while they're in the hospital receiving care. And it's also nice that it's, you know, less and fewer caregivers and providers are being impacted, you know, not only in their own homes, you know, where there's cohabitation or exposure or something. So they're unable to help care for our patients and help each other while they're, uh, you know, in with the team-based care and taking care of our patients. So so it may not be a full green light, but it's uh, getting core, closer to that green light. But you, you raised an interesting point to, uh, for folks, and, and I was just going to give you some perspective with Heather Hill talking about the COVID case rates have literally gotten cut in half, it seems like, each week for the last four weeks, half of what they were the week prior. And I think it's roughly the same in the hospital setting. I, I Just a perusal that I did today, uh, Cadillac showed a number roughly around 18. A week ago, it was 25. A week before that, it was 55. The week before that, mid-60s. And the high point was about a month ago in the 70s. So what you're saying, though, the the key point not only is it's great to have that come down, but what you're saying when people had to be admitted for COVID uh, because they tested positive, that still puts some strain on the staff that they still have to take all those precautions for infection control purposes, right? Absolutely. You know, wearing all the donning and doffing, the, you know, their personal protective equipment, going in and out of the rooms, helping to care for patients. And then, yes, it does add to some of the time in providing the care. And it's nice as those numbers decrease, having those patients in isolation, you know, then it's fewer that they have to put on all their uh, personal protective equipment, depending upon the, the situation, of course. So, yes, it does. It is nice to see the numbers coming down in our uh, community and in our hospital. It's just really nice to see. 
And you touched on it too. Just one last statistical question, and and that's the Catholic caregivers that 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 work uh, taking care of patients twenty four seven in the hospital and in the various clinic settings. COVID, especially with this Omicron, was so contagious that really impacted staffing. How is staffing currently? You know, we still have some challenges. I mean, it's not coming back completely. It's getting better to the point to where we can care for more patients. I mean, along with the proclamation, having uh, fewer procedures done, just following the guidelines there, that was impactful. With fewer caregivers, you know, it made it a little bit uh, better, not easier to all the way. It was just it did help during that time, but it also, you know, delayed care, and there's things that will work on helping to get those patients served because they definitely need to have their, their procedures. But having them back is in having more available really helps, you know, being a regional medical center and be able to take those transfers and or the patients who come through our emergency department or our freestanding emergency department, being able to admit them and they have a bed to be cared for. And you touched on that word proclamation and and, and what you're referring to is in an a month or so ago, one of the governor's stipulations was all hospitals throughout the state had to stop these certain types of procedures as a means to hopefully preserving staff. And, that's, and so now that has been lifted, correct? Yes, that, yes, that is correct. Where are we? One, one thing I want to have you address, and, and it's so nice to see these, the hospitalized numbers go down, but I know we have visited on this statistic before that Catholic is a very, very busy hospital system regardless of what the COVID numbers are. So as, as, as much as you're able to diminish the number of COVID patients in there, that allows um, the ability to handle more than other kinds of patients, which, again, not come only from the Tri-Cities area, but all throughout this region. Talk a little bit about that, and, and what kinds of patients are we talking about? You're, you're still pretty full, uh, even though the COVID numbers are coming down. Yes, that's correct. I mean, in the, some of our smaller communities that do not have the same number of, you know, same amount of types of services and or even beds available to care for their patients, they need someone to help transfer them to, which we have that opportunity, you know, depending upon the situation, because we have a, a wider range of services to provide, whether it's, you know, in our cardiac cath lab, our intensive care unit, our NICU, or uh, to care for patients, and then also, you know, laboring moms that need to, that are high risk that we need to care for just you know depending upon how their uh, delivery goes again back to if their the baby needs to go to the NICU and just the number of uh, beds we have in general in relation to some of the smaller facilities around the services we can provide you know with the hospitalist intensivist and our ability there to care for them and our uh, two emergency departments too to have as patients you know arrive in our emergency departments to care for them and then if needed to be admitted and you raise an interesting point because these smaller regional communities that Catholic serves, not only in eastern Washington, but down into northern Oregon as well, it's almost like uh, the hospital functions as a almost like a, a air traffic control for an airport in many ways, and that you, people are constantly from other outlying facilities are calling into our teams, right, to to want to send patients and coordinate transfers. So it's almost, talk a little bit about that. And it, there's a lot of work that goes into that, right? You know, it is fascinating to watch our transfer center because all admissions go through our transfer center and our caregivers that are working the transfer center do an amazing job in keeping track. Yes, they get multiple calls throughout the day and night from facilities trying to, you know, have one of our, have a patient admitted to us. 
And they just, they, yes, the way they keep track of them, I love the analogy of, of air traffic control, because not only inside the walls of a hospital from, you know, the operating room, uh, down in the cath lab or other areas, they are in the emergency department freestanding. They're trying to get patients from those areas into a bed. They're also taking those calls from outside facilities and trying to balance getting them into a bed appropriately too. You know, again, whether it's intensive care, it's a cardiac unit, it's a step-down unit, it's acute care. They're trying to juggle and monitor all of those uh, patients coming in and making sure we get them in the right place at the right time, you know, and receive the care that they need. I want to start uh, or finish, I should say, with our time with you where we began, and that's talking about uh, these these caregiver staff that have taken care of patients, uh, not only at the bedside, but all throughout the system that are supporting the people on the front lines as well. But what can the members of the public do? I know that the communities have been so supportive throughout this, but as we near the quote-unquote finish line of this and, and start uh, beginning to turn toward a, a, a more positive future relative to, to COVID, what can the public do to, as a, I guess, as a, as a way to, to, to help the caregivers really cross that finish line with some renewed strength? You know, as we go through this, just continue to follow the, uh, the guidelines that are in front of us. They have work, they do work, they continue to work, whether it's masking, you know, good hand hygiene, washing your hands, uh, social distancing, being very mindful. If someone does have symptoms and they're not feeling well, keep themselves away from others and just help protect each other so we don't have it spread because each person, you know, has a different response to it. So really just following those guidelines that are out there. They have worked, they continue to work as we've seen the numbers come up, decrease and start to come down. So that would, and then just tell them thank you and a little bit of grace and appreciation for all that our caregivers and providers are doing on a, you know, 24-7 basis. Well, Kirk Harper, thanks again so much for joining us. You've been so gracious with your time throughout the last two years uh, after some long, long days and keeping our community updated on how things stand with your teams over at Cadillac. Kirk Harper, the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Cadillac Regional Medical Center. Back with our final segment of Cadillac on Call in just a moment. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Back with our remaining minutes of Cadillac on Call, and another consequence of the pandemic has been an increased incidence of drug addiction, particularly through prescription drugs and opioids. It's primarily related to elevated levels of anxiety and depression among our population and leading women to the use of drugs or alcohol. And it's been, when they're pregnant, sometimes that can be result in drug-addicted mothers, and it can be heartbreaking as the baby can experience addiction and withdrawal symptoms, leading them to a prolonged hospital stay and in, in very serious uh, illness. Here now to share more with us is Dr. Kashish Mera. He's a neonatal intensive care specialist at Catholic Regional Medical Center in Richland. And Dr. Mera, first of all, uh, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight because you take care of the most fragile babies, you and your team, and, and a very important topic, a heartbreaking topic. But share a little bit about what this problem is and, most importantly, uh, what you and your team are doing to help. Absolutely. Thank you for, first of all, thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, yeah. 
as you said, I think it's uh, a little heartbreaking. We love to take care of these little babies and, you know, fix them and send them home. But this part is actually very uh, special for me and my staff because I think that it's preventable. Like you can prevent a lot of this, what I'm going to talk about. So as you mentioned, I, uh, the population that I'm interested in, or the babies I'm interested in, uh, we mentioned, we refer to them as drug withdrawal babies, quote unquote, right? The, the medical term we use is neonatal abstinence syndrome, but um, we have seen that in the recent years, there has been quite an increase in number of babies who are ended up ending up in hospitals and needing more and more medical care for drugs they were exposed when they were with their mom. And there are side effects to this. For example, if mom was taking a prescription or some other opioids or any these days street drugs, and these babies are born, they are at high risk for, uh, you know, irritability, feeding difficulties. They can have loose tools, diarrhea. They may need IV fluids right away. And that, that increases the length of stay. And not only that, like these are short-term problems, but later on also these babies, uh, if, if they did not receive proper care and if they got exposed to opioids and other stuff when they were in bomb, they have developmental problems. They can have motor, they can have uh, problems with their movements, learning difficulties, and uh, poor grades in school. And this has been actually so far well-documented. And when I talk about increased frequency, I'm, we're talking about national data. And if we look, look at just Washington state data, we have from Washington state health data only until 2017, they're still working on it. But we have seen increase in the last decade from We've seen the cases have gone up from like one to two per hundred thousand per, per thousand to now we have closer to ten cases per thousand. But um, and that is just a, like a number that I can quote you. But even like saying in the NICU, you can see every day you have two or three babies every day um, that we are trying to help overcome these symptoms. Um, so yeah. So when when a baby is impacted in this instance, obviously if they're needing a, a stay in a, a neonatal unit, it's very serious. But but what is their prognosis? Is there very near term concern, or is it more when they that they can survive? But then as they grow, it's the developmental challenges they'll face potentially. It's both. So thank you for asking that question. Actually, they're both short term and long term. Short term, yes, they will actually if they end up in NICU means they require some medical treatment probably, like uh, opioid, to help overcome the symptoms. And that means more stay in hospital. Uh, that means that may mean need for IV fluids because these babies are so, the tone is sometimes so high, they, they're not able to coordinate sucking and feeding well, so they may require gavage feeds or IV feeds, IV fluids. And they may not, they have poor coordination, so they may not feed very well for a couple of weeks. So that's one short-term or a couple of short-term problems. Other things short-term concerning is convulsions and seizures. These babies can have real medical problems from these exposure. And long-term also are, are very important. Sometimes we take the focus, that not we, I mean, we forget that opioid exposure and other exposures have long-term problems. Long-term problems like even when they go home, they ha- they can have really uh, these can be babies can be really fussy, really hard to control, and they can have long-term learning disabilities. 
studies have shown that the babies who were exposed to uh, substances with mom, they have poor school grades. They are not at par uh, with their peers in school grades and developmental, uh, they are real developmental concerns later on. So we have just about one minute left, and I guess if someone happens to be listening to this program and fears this could be happening to them or someone they know, what should they do? So I urge them, if they are suffering from this problem or their loved ones or their friends or family, Cadillac can provide them resources. We have a community resource desk. Uh, they, They can call Cadillac just Cadillac number and ask for community resource desk and we can provide you resources within the community. There are various state funded programs running and help within the Cadillac. Both helps are available. Uh, so I urge them to call these centers and seek prenatal care, means care when you're pregnant, because if you seek a provider, they can um, guide you to a better treatment. So the outcome for the baby are not as concerning as they might be without treatment. And I know uh, the history of the Cadillac NICU for 35-plus years. It, it is a, a unit of, of literal miracles, but but obviously just one more compounded type of baby that you have to take care of. And as you said, it's preventable, right? It is, yes. That's the key word. We can prevent all this uh, just by getting into medical care early and prevent these devastating outcomes. Right? Well, our thanks to Dr. Mera for joining us today. And if you or someone close to you needs help for a substance abuse disorder, as Dr. Mera mentioned, please call the Cadillac Community Resource Desk. And that phone number is area code 509-942-2946, 509-942-2946 for assistance. That call is confidential. Our thanks to Dr. Mera, to Kirk Harper, and to Heather Hill with the Health District. And thank you for listening. We'll talk again next Wednesday night.